You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Well, Merry Christmas, Harvest. Do you ever, uh, do you ever hesitate before you say Merry Christmas? Certain people, certain situations... You wonder, uh, do, they, do they celebrate Christmas? Uh, maybe, they, maybe some sort of, uh, maybe they uh, believe a different religion or maybe just their upbringing or maybe just their general approach on life. They, you're afraid that you might uh, offend them. Or even when, when you say Merry Christmas, you know, you, you are thinking about the birth of the Son of God and, and, and the rest of the world is so often just thinking about is Santa Claus and gifts and presents. You know, at, at Christmas time, something strange happens for the Christian. There, there's a lot of things that we celebrate as Christians where the world doesn't pay any attention at all, doesn't participate in, in any way. Yet Christmas, there's this, this blending of things in our culture, things that are celebrated. Some of them are quite Christian. Santa Claus is Saint Nicholas. Saint, if you study the history of Saint Nicholas, he was very much about Jesus. And there's this blending, and we, we're never sure if when we say Merry Christmas, are you like Jesus Christmas or Santa Christmas? And, and how do we... How do we navigate through that? Well, we're starting this new series called For All People. And it's to remind ourselves as a church and to remind visitors who are here with us and people in this great city and this great nation that we live in that Jesus Christ came for all people. The angelic messengers told the, told the shepherds, he, will, he has come to bring joy for all all the people. No one gets left out of the Christmas message. It is intended for all a people. And so we're going to be studying in the gospel of Luke, looking at this idea of what did it mean for Jesus to come for all people. If you have a Bible, you can open up to the gospel of Luke. The ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now with copies of the Bible who don't have a copy of God's word. Have you ever felt uh, forgotten or left behind? I remember when I was at the airport in Port-au-Prince, uh, Haiti, and I'm not sure if you've ever been to an airport in a developing world. It is, it's quite, quite an experience. I've been to a few of them now. And I was going to Haiti with a bunch of pastors, and we were going to learn about uh, the Harvest Bible chapels that are in Haiti and learn about the great job that they're doing and, and see if we can come alongside them and help them. And Daniel Henderson, who's one of our missionaries who works in translation, he got a whole bunch of books translated into French. And so we had like 12 cardboard boxes full of books. And uh, as everyone was grabbing their luggage, we were also responsible for having these boxes of books uh, exit the airport along with us. And I happened to be the one that was pushing uh, the cart with all of these boxes on it. Everyone was walking just a few steps ahead. And then without anyone else knowing, as the group continued to move forward, uh, someone stepped right in my path and waved me in a different uh, direction. And I was being led into this other room where there was a bunch of uh, customs officers who were all speaking French to me, which I, I, could, I could conjugate some verbs in high school, but I cannot speak French. And it was a, it was a frightening moment 
it was a scary moment. I was all alone in a foreign land and everyone else seemed to be able, they, they moved forward fine, but, but I, had to, I had to stop. And everyone else was going along this path, but there was this other path that I was supposed to uh, go on. It wasn't, it wasn't fun. The story ends great. Obviously, I made it back from Haiti and the group came back and Daniel Henderson's fluent in French and we were able to sort, sort things out. But what I experienced there for about three or four minutes, uh, some of us, we, we feel like our whole life is like that. Our whole life is just, everyone else is going down this path, the easy path, the clear path, and some, somewhere along the line, someone told me that I need to go over there, and my way is going to be harder, and my way is going to be more confusing, and my way is going to be more frightening. And for some of us, Christmas is just a painful reminder that we, we're not like all people. That, that everyone else seems to be going this way, and why do I have to go this way? Christmas is for people who are financially stable, with all of the emphasis on buying presents and Christmas lifts and shopping and wrapping presents and you feel so strapped financially that all of this spending and all of this talking, you feel the sense of alienation because you feel trapped by the financial struggle you feel in or the, or the, the, the family struggle that you're experiencing. Everyone, Christmas is all about getting together with family. Well, your family's divided or your family is missing an important a loved one and it's just a painful reminder that you're on this other little path. Everyone else is doing their family thing, but your thing is so much harder. And when we're talking about for all people, I want to be clear, especially when we get into the Gospel of Luke here. The Gospel of Luke is going to, it, it's going to begin with the story of two people who felt left behind. Two people who felt forgotten. Two people who were wondering if they were forsaken. And when we talk about all people, we are talking about people who feel as though they are forgotten and as though they are forsaken. That is exactly who Jesus came for. So before we jump into God's word, let's pray together that he would speak to us. So Heavenly Father, God, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who we celebrate at Christmas time, his amazing arrival. And we ask that your Holy Spirit, Lord God, would lead us and guide us, God, to take these words that are on a page, God, and to, uh, and to allow the living and active word to speak directly to our hearts and to transform us. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. It begins by saying, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, um, a Herod uh, wasn't really a king, and uh, he's not really a main character in the story. The reason why Herod is there is because Luke was a faithful historian. He didn't want his gospel just to be like a once upon a time kind of a story. So he rooted it in history because this actually happened. Then we're introduced to the main characters, at least of how this story begins. It says there was a, a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. If you're here today and you feel like you've been forgotten or forsaken, and if Christmas is just a painful reminder of that, I want you to look at the Christmas story from the lens of Zachariah and Elizabeth. 
And I want to warn you about making some assumptions, about believing some lies that simply aren't true. So there's three warnings from this passage. The first one is this. Don't assume that difficult circumstances means God is punishing you. Don't assume that difficult circumstances means that God is punishing you. It says here that uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth had no child, that Elizabeth was in fact a barren. Uh, Culturally speaking, in that time, to have no children was like being under a curse from God. Uh, The Old Testament prophets spoke so powerfully to the nation of Israel, calling them to repent of their sin and warning them about barrenness in the land, warning them about closing up the womb. And what was spoken by the prophets on a national level was applied culturally on an individual level. I mean, if Israel sins and, and the result of that is that There's widespread infertility. If that's true of the nation, that must be true of the individual. So if Zechariah and Elizabeth aren't able to conceive, then they must be sinning. They must have either done something wrong in their past or they're hiding some secret, sinister, evil practice that no one knows about. No doubt even Zechariah and Elizabeth would have been asking the same questions as everyone else seemed to be going along the path of having children and raising a family and wondering, as as they've been off on this other path, wondering, why is it so hard for us? Have we done something to deserve this? Is, Is God somehow punishing us? But the text makes it clear as they're described. Verse six, they were both righteous before God, blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. That's how they walked. That's how they lived. They were, they were blameless. This doesn't mean that they were perfect. But I mean, Zechariah was a priest. Elizabeth not only had a priest for her husband, she also had a priest for her father. And so they knew a fair, they knew a fair amount about sin and forgiveness and grace through the sacrificial system at the temple. But the fact that they were a priestly family, I think, even compounded even more. What why is it that this, that this priestly family, look at their pedigree, look at their heritage, of course, of course they should have a quiverful of children. And then people would begin to talk. And people would say, well, look, look, at, look, at, look at their childlessness. And, and look, at, look at their life. There's, there, must be, there must be something. They must have done something. You ever hear people say something like, well, yeah, you look at the situation and you just, you, you put two and two together. I found in my experience that most people who think they can put two and two together end up with 22 instead of four. They think there's a whole lot more there that isn't there. And they're doing mathematics that is none of their business. And that would have been daily life for Zachariah. And Elizabeth, other people talking about them, them themselves, their own conscience. What, have I done something wrong? Well, the truth is, loved ones, that difficult circumstances does not mean that God is punishing you. Sometimes we suffer as a result of our sins. Sometimes there are consequences that we uh, experience or go through. But that doesn't mean that every time we suffer, it doesn't mean that every hardship we go through is that God is uh, punishing us.
You might be here today, just like Zachariah and Elizabeth. Maybe your struggle is infertility. Maybe your struggle is even getting to the point where fertility could be an option. Maybe it's singleness. Maybe it's a financial struggle or burden that you are carrying. Maybe it's a relationship that's been broken down, even though you've tried to do everything on your end to make it right. Maybe it's anxiety or depression. Maybe it's some sort of illness. Whatever it may be, you need to understand that difficult circumstances does not mean that God is punishing you. The whole book of Job, Job's friends were trying to put two and two together. They looked at Job's life and they looked at Job's suffering and then for like 35 chapters, they just go off saying, you must have sinned. You must be to blame for this. This has to be your fault. And that's exactly what Zechariah and Elizabeth would have been wondering and what other people would have been saying about them. The story goes on in verse 8 after we're introduced to the characters. It says, now while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, the priests were divided into like 24 uh, divisions. Uh, It mentioned earlier in verse 5 that he was from the division of Abijah. And these were based off the descendants of Aaron. And David set this up, kind of a, a serving schedule, a rotation of priests coming to the temple to serve and to work. And, and that all uh, um, was reestablished after the people of Israel returned uh, from exile. And it says, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn Uh, incense. Uh, Here's a diagram of the temple. This is what he was uh, chosen to do. So sort of in the outer court uh, area, the court of the priest, this is the altar. They had to go up steps to to make sacrifices on this massive fire. There was also this giant basin of water called the sea for ceremonial washing. And then uh, up more steps and into this to, into this room, which was really the, the entering into the, te- the, the temple. This area here was sort of considered outside of the temple, even though only priests could, could, be, out, could be in that area. Inside the temple, you had uh, the golden lampstand, and you had the table that had the, the bread of the presence, or the show bread, and then you had the smaller altar called the altar of incense. And, and Uh, That lamp needed to be burning continually and fresh bread continued to be, uh, needed to be continually added to that and the incense needed to be continually replenished. And so um, it's commanded in Exodus chapter 30 that a a priest, uh, one priest is supposed to go in there in the morning and one priest is supposed to go in there in the afternoon. And the way that they decided that, it says that they they cast lots in verse 9. That was their uh, custom. It was sort of like having a raffle, putting all the names in the hat, and, and then the different name would be, would be chosen. Now remember, Zachariah is an older man. He was already probably struggling with this idea of being overlooked, of being forgotten, of being forsaken. And young priests and old priests, they all got their names put in the hat. And once you went into that holy place to offer that uh, sacrifice, this is just to be clear about the, the, the holy of holies, which is at the, the, the very core of the temple, where in Solomon's temple, that's where the Ark of the Covenant would have been, the, the symbolic presence of God. Only one high priest once a year would go into that part, but this other part, uh, twice a day, a different priest. Old people got their names in the hat. Young people got their names in the hat. And for year after year, the name Zachariah would have gone in. 
Year after year, he would have been up for the opportunity to go into the holy place. And year after year, he wasn't chosen until this year. When a priest served, they served for one week at a time, two weeks out of the year. Zachariah would have had a, another job, another vocation uh, away from the city of uh, Jerusalem. So he, he, he had two weeks a year, uh, those seven days where he had the opportunity of being chosen and he had never been chosen until this day. And Zechariah, what he was feeling, feeling forgotten and feeling forsaken, the, the, the whole nation was kind of feeling this way. They had returned... <laughs> They had returned from Babylon miraculously and they had seen God do such great and amazing things and the temple had been rebuilt and, and the Persians who were in power now seemed, seemed to be so much in favor but then the, the Persians were overtaken by the Greeks and then the Greeks were then just overtaken by the Romans and when the Persians were in power, Israel thought, well, maybe now's our time to rise to prominence. Never happened. Then when the Greeks were in power, maybe now's our time to rise to prominence. No, didn't happen. Then when the Romans are in charge, when will our time be? When will the Messiah come? When will God begin to speak again? So what Zachariah and Elizabeth were feeling, the whole nation was feeling as well. Is God really listening? Is he really paying attention? Zachariah would have been struggling with all of these things. And so what Zechariah has chosen to do on this day, to go and to burn incense in the holy place, remember, this happened twice a day, every day. Not 730 times a year. And this had been going on since the temple had been reconstructed, which is about 500 years. So this, what Zechariah was about to do had happened at least 378,680 times before. And nothing had happened except this day. This is the day where everything changed. It says in verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. The incense was a symbol of, God's, of God hearing the prayers of the people. Just as the smoke from the incense would waft up to heaven's the picture was that the prayers of the people, when they gathered, that they would pray knowing, having that image that it was wafting up to heaven, that God heard their prayers. Verse 12 says, sorry, verse 11 says, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him, verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Now, Zachariah's response to seeing an angel is a lot different from our culture's response to seeing an angel. In our culture today, at a Christmas play or on an Ann Getty's photo, we sort of think, aw, an angel. Meanwhile, Zachariah, really face to face with an actual angel, he's not saying, aw, an angel. He's saying, aw, an angel. It says fear fell upon him. He was greatly troubled at the sight of this angel. And then the angel, just par for the course, if you read through the story of God's people in, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, whenever an angel shows up, they always have the same first line. Do not be afraid. 
Uh, because there's, there's just something about them. There's not a whole lot of description about what they look like or, or how they appear or anything like that. But it's absolutely terrifying. It's not cute. It's absolutely terrifying to be in the presence of an angel. But he says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. In verse 13, he says, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John, here's the second thing I want you to know as you head into Christmas this year. Don't assume that unanswered prayer means that God is ignoring you. Don't assume that unanswered prayer means that God is ignoring you. I mean, the angel comes to the temple. Zechariah is now an old man and the angel says, your prayer has been answered. And then he, he, he specifies the prayer. Your prayer for a son because Elizabeth is, is going to conceive and give birth. Now think about this. Zechariah and Elizabeth are now, they're, they're old. They're at grandparent age now. Chances are they weren't still praying regularly for a son. I mean, they probably prayed pretty earnestly, you know, it probably started with the awkward wedding speech from the in-laws, you know, Elizabeth, welcome to the family, and we look forward to the pitter-patter feet of little Zachariah Jr., get us some grandkids as soon as possible. That that probably started, they started praying then and around then sometime. And then when their siblings were getting married and having kids, maybe they really devoted some time about praying and fasting about this and really seeking the Lord and again, searching their own hearts and trying not to, uh, trying not to doubt God. But eventually you would think that whether they were content with it and had peace about it or not, they probably stopped praying about it, don't you think? They, they probably just thought, well, I guess it just wasn't, I guess it just wasn't God's will. But here's the thing, even when we're done praying, God's not done answering. Even when we're done praying, God's not done listening. And God chose this specific time and this specific moment to answer Zechariah's prayer. So often we think God is saying no, but he's really saying not yet. And then he he tells Zechariah what he's going to name his son. He says, you will call his name John. John means God is gracious. And God was being gracious to Zechariah and Elizabeth in their uh, old age. Verse 14 says, And you will have joy and gladness. All of the fear, all of the worry, all of the soul searching, all of the doubt, all of the questioning for all of those years, wondering if because of their difficult circumstances that God was somehow not pleased with them and now they are going to have John. Now they are going to know God is gracious. Now they are going to be filled with joy that God is a good God. But he wasn't just going to give them a child and it wasn't just for them. Verse 14 says, and you will have joy and gladness. But then it goes on to say, and many will rejoice at his birth. You see, God was going to do something bigger than just bless this family. He was going to bless this nation. Something bigger than even blessing this nation. He was going to bless this world. It says in verse 15, for he will be great before the Lord. He will be great before the Lord. This is something that Jesus even affirmed about John when John was older. In in Luke chapter 7, in the same book, Jesus talking about his cousin John says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. 
Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Zechariah and Elizabeth knew what it was to have other people think things about them. Zechariah and Elizabeth probably even struggled with their own self-worth and what they thought about themselves. Listen, ultimately what matters is what God thinks. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, it says. And, they, and they're going to have a son who is going to be great in God's sight. What God thinks ultimately is all that matters. He will be great. It says he will, he must not, and sorry, and must not drink wine or strong drink. In the Old Testament, there was something called a Nazarite vow where someone could make a vow to God for a period of time where they, they didn't cut their hair and they didn't drink any alcohol and, and they went through these specific things for a period of time. Now, John wasn't to be a Nazarite, but it, the Nazarite vow, was a temp, there, was a, there was an end date on it. But John was, was to be set apart to the Lord for his whole life. He was to, be, he was to live uh, differently. It says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And we'll see about that in a, a, um, as the story unfolds, how even in his womb he recognized when Jesus, who was in Mary's womb, uh, was present. And this is his mission, verse six, 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 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. His ministry was to turn the word turn or repent is one of the key concepts that every Christian needs to understand. Turning involves repenting of our sin. You see, we all need to turn to God because each and every single human heart has turned away from God. He had given us his law. He had given us his love. He had given us life and everything. And rather than worshiping him and praising him and living for him, we worship ourselves and live for ourselves. And we turn away from him and go our own way. In simplest terms, this is what sin is. Turning away from God. But John's role was to turn people back towards God. And that's what we are called upon to do as well, to call people to turn. It says that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, and he will go before him. He will go before God. He's going to be a forerunner before the Messiah, before Jesus. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. What's all this business about Elijah turning hearts to fathers and children, all of this, all of this sort of thing? What, what is Gabriel getting at here? Well, as I mentioned, the people of Israel were wondering... Have we been forgotten? Have we been forsaken? We've returned from exile hundreds of years ago. We've been waiting for the Messiah. We've been, we've been waiting for our nation to, to rise to prominence, to return to its former glory. And nothing has happened. There have been no, no, no prophets. No one had spoken. The last prophet to speak was Malachi. And the last words out of Malachi's mouth, the last thing that God said through a prophet was this. This is the very end of the book of Malachi, at the very end of the Old Testament, before 400 years of silence. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before 
the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Do You see what's happening here? God hadn't spoken in 400 years and he is now picking up exactly where he left off. Those are literally the last words of the Old Testament. And here is the first prophecy given, given by an angel, given to Zechariah in the heart of the temple and he picks up right where he left off. This is the faithfulness of God. He hadn't forgotten the people. He hadn't forsaken. He hadn't forgotten the things that he had promised. He is going to fulfill them. Why is it that fathers' hearts need to turn toward children and children towards their fathers? We'll understand that once we turn back to the Lord, then that is going to result in turning in our other relationships. Here at Harvest, we talk about having our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with others. Notice how it, how it comes in the right order. It began by, by saying in verse 16 that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. It starts with turning towards God. And then the next verse says, and he will turn the hearts of sons to their fathers and fathers to their sons. Which is really just a picture of all human relationships. You've got to get the, you've got to get the vertical right before you start working on those horizontal relationships. And so John was, was to be a powerful prophet like Elijah. Then at the end of verse 17, it says to, to, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That was going to be John's role, this preparatory role. Prepare for the coming of the Messiah. Something I heard a preacher say about a year ago has really stuck with me. He said this. He said, God is often working on larger visions and longer timelines. Larger visions and longer timelines. And I think that's what's happening here. God could have given Zachariah and Elizabeth a new child when they prayed for it the very first time. He could have opened her womb. He could have given it. He could have answered that prayer then. But now he's choosing to miraculously come through really at the 11th hour for them because God had a larger vision for this child. This child was not just going to be used to bless this family. This child was going to be used to bless and prepare this nation, which, would, which will also reverberate all over the world. So the timeline was longer, but the vision was larger. So you need to understand that our prayers are being heard. They aren't being, they aren't being ignored. I mean, how many times would have Zechariah prayed for a son? And how many times also, if Zechariah is just a faithful priest, he also would have prayed, he also would have prayed for the restoration of the nation of Israel and for it to return to its glory. So he would, he'd pray for his son and then that would be the end of that prayer and then he'd pray for his country. He never thought that the answer to his prayer for a son would also be the answer to the prayer for his country. You see, only God can work on that kind of level, that kind of complexity, that, that, that kind of awesome power where those two prayers are coming uh, together in this one moment. Here's how Zechariah responds in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Stand in the presence of God. I'm sorry. And I stand in the presence of God. 
And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Here's the last thing I want you to understand. Don't assume that your doubt means that God is rejecting you. Don't assume that your doubt means that God is rejecting you. Of Zechariah doubts. He asks for a sign. Verse 18, how shall I know this? Uh, this, is, this is too crazy. How, how, am I supposed to, how am I supposed to know this? And even though Zechariah fails here in doubting, he really is a terrific husband. Because what he says next, I mean, he's just scoring major wife points here. In how he handles this situation. Verse 18. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. That's just just wisdom right there. So he's an old man. His wife is advanced in years. I'm just going to give all the men here just a little bit of advice here. All right. Uh, You never ask a woman's age, you never guess a woman's age, and when she tells you, you're always surprised because you assume she was much younger. (laughs) The other thing that's related to this story is uh, you never assume that a woman's pregnant. Ever. She could be writhing in contractions. She could be getting on to an ambulance and, and... rushed off to the hospital, and, uh, but unless she tells you she's expecting, you assume nothing. That's a little bit of advice that's free of charge. So Zachariah wins as a husband, but he fails here in doubting, how shall I know this? And so the angel really lets him have it here. Verse 19, the angel an- answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Think about that. Think about updating your your Facebook status to saying, I stand in the presence of God. Think about that on on a resume or on a business card. I stand in the presence of God. He really lets him have it here. You're questioning me? You're asking me for a sign? I stand in the presence of God. You want a draw to come here one day of your life. And, I, and this is the symbolic presence of God. I stand in the actual presence of God. And he says, And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Just think about this. Zachariah doubts. Uh, Gabriel easily could have just said, you know what? There's another another priest coming in about 12 hours. This happens twice a day. I'm just going to go with the next guy. This is a pretty big deal. We can't have doubters involved. We, we, we really need the person to have a, a lot of faith. 
And they, we, we can't have someone who's kind of questioning and struggling. And sometimes the way that we talk about faith in Christian life is that we, we sort of communicate that people who have doubts are just somehow unwelcome. That you gotta have faith, man. And if you don't believe and if you don't have faith, then, then that's your problem. But we're, we're a faith community. And, and forget all the doubters. God doesn't say forget all the doubters. Don't assume that your doubt means that God is rejecting you. God did not reject Zechariah. God worked with his doubt. Zechariah wanted a sign. He gave him a sign. And again, only God can work on multiple levels in the way that he does. So Zechariah asked for a sign, but Zechariah also needs to be disciplined by the Lord by not believing. And so what does he do? He takes the sign and the discipline. He puts them together. He says, your sign is the fact that you're not going to be able to talk until... Um, un, uh, until John is born. And there's no record of Elizabeth uh, questioning uh, whether or not that was wise or not. He says, because you did not believe, notice how John, or how uh, Zechariah in verse 18, he says, how shall I know this? He wants to know. And Gabriel says, you did not believe. Sometimes we think that if we can just know enough, then we will believe. If I get all the facts right, then that will lead to faith. That's not true. God tells us what we need to know. And based on what he's told us, it's not completely blind faith. He does tell us. I mean, he sent, it, he sent an angel uh, to tell this to Zachariah. It's not completely blind faith. There's a huge difference between knowing and between uh, believing. And Zachariah needed to learn that lesson. But listen, you need to understand, if you're here today and sometimes you have doubts, you need to understand that you're in good company because the person standing on this platform has doubt sometimes. But whether God is, is with me or for me or not punishing me or not displeased for me, sometimes I struggle with those doubts. I was on the phone with a dear sister in the Lord this week and uh, she called our church from the hospital. I was talking to her on the phone and she's just been struggling. It's just a lifetime of just all kinds of health problems. And she was, she was at a prayer meeting or a special service at another church. And I'm sure these were well-meaning Christians, but they were telling her and really leaning into her that the reason why she's still sick is because she doesn't have enough faith to be healed. Rather than, putting the, rather than putting the weight and, and, and responsibility on the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God, even in the midst of a health problem, the burden of responsibility was placed squarely on her shoulders and it was crushing her. It's hard enough to go through an illness, let alone to go through an illness and think it's your fault. And so she was having some doubts. Am I really even a Christian? What? what? Why is all of this happening to me? Listen, you need to understand that if you're, if you're doubting, you're in good company. Listen, Gideon doubted. He asked for signs. God did amazing things through him. You need, you need, to, you need to understand that even John the Baptist kind of took after his father a little bit. John the Baptist, who was the one who was supposed to prepare the way for the Lord. The one who said, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And then when Jesus came, he pointed at him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one. A little while later, when John finds himself in prison, John sends messengers to Jesus, and what's the question that he asks? Are you really the one, or should we be waiting for someone else? He doubted, and he's the greatest. 
So don't be afraid. Don't think that because you struggle with doubt from time to time, I'm not, I'm not talking about a, a, a lifestyle regularly doubting. That's not healthy. But listen, we all struggle along those lines. And God is in the oh, Zechariah doubted. Let's get another priest. No, he works with, he works through our doubt to accomplish his purposes. Verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained uh, mute. So you can picture it became this big uh, game of charades. He's like, uh, I, was, I was doing the incense thing and then all of a sudden there's this big angel and he's telling me that Elizabeth is going to be pregnant and, and then I said, and then he closed my mouth. And, and so he, he tried using signs to to communicate uh, these things. And then verse 23, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden. It doesn't explain why she kept herself hidden. I'm thinking that maybe at her age, she would rather show people she was pregnant than try to convince them that she was. And so she allowed time to pass. It was very obvious that she was pregnant. None of the men asked her. Um, but it became very obvious that she, that she was. And she says in verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Elizabeth sometimes is, is criticized by commentators here about not seeing the larger vision or the longer timeline. She's just focusing in on herself. Notice the repetition of, you know, he's, what he's done for me. He looked on me. He took away my uh, reproach. She's only thinking about her uh, situation. And why didn't Elizabeth get excited about the things happening around the, around the themes of the nation being restored and glory being given uh, to God? Humanly speaking, uh, the bigger something becomes, the more uh, impersonal it feels. Someone starts a coffee shop near your work and you can go in there, you get to know the owner and the staff. They even sort of like know the time of day that you come in and how you like your coffee and so it's like ready for you there. And, but then if that coffee shop really takes off, then he, the owner is busy expanding and hiring more staff and changing the way things are going, that personal touch is lost, especially if he then you know, sort of starts a franchise and, and now he's, he's got three or four locations and you kind of walk in and, and people don't recognize you or know you, that you lose that sense, that personal touch. Can happen, it can happen in a coffee shop, it can happen in a church. You know, churches can grow and it used to be able to see the same people every day and, 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 and uh, all of these things. And then, and then as the church grows and ex as exciting as that is, there's that sense of I just don't have that personal touch anymore. Sometimes it can happen in a city like Brampton. They used to be essentially like a, like a village. This sort of like a four-corner four uh, uh town with, with farmers and everyone knew one another and, and then the city grows and there's this, there's this it's so impersonal. That's, that's true humanly speaking and from a human perspective, but that is not true spiritually. 
It said, it, I, I love what it says in verse 14. It says, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice. God is always working on the personal level and the corporate level. It is for all people. Many will rejoice, but you yourself personally will rejoice as well. And again, the same God who can take a prayer for a son and make an answer a prayer for a nation. The same God who can take a discipline and a sign and weave them together. He can also take something that affects the whole world and have it speak to your heart as though it only was for you. That's the gospel. That when we, when we hear, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, sometimes we, well, that's kind of impersonal, isn't it? I mean, there's billions of us all over. It is so personal that he knows our struggles, that he knows our fears and our failings, and he chooses to love us and to save us. And you can know that personally today. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He came for you personally. Maybe, maybe, well, I tried to pray, but God doesn't, he's been ignoring me. Listen, he doesn't ignore prayer. And if you're experiencing that right now, like God isn't listening to you, you need to understand that Jesus experienced that as well. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed earnestly with tears, take this cup from me. And God's answer was no. And if you're here today and everyone seems to be going down this path and you're going down this harder path and you're wondering why am I suffering, you need to understand that Jesus Christ knows suffering. And you might wonder, am, am I being punished by God? Listen, Jesus did suffer and he was punished by God. So that when the Christian places their faith in Jesus, they need to never ask the question, is God punishing me? Because God already has punished Jesus on your behalf. That's the point of the cross. And so the emphatic answer to the question, the soul-searching question, is God displeased with me? Is this condemnation? It's not. Because our punishment has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. And that temple that had these, these curtains that you couldn't go through, these doors, these barriers, that temple that Zechariah only once in his lifetime was able to go in into that place, that temple when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was torn in two. Saying this isn't just for a couple of priests. This isn't just for the high priest. This is for all people. And the invitation is open uh, for you today. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray for those who may feel forgotten or forsaken. I pray for those who feel like the world is passing them by. God, I pray that right now they would have a real sense of your care and your love for them. I pray that we would all find ourselves in this story of Zachariah and Elizabeth. And I pray that you would speak so powerfully and so clearly, God, to us as a large group, as a community, but also as individuals. So God, I, I pray that you would impress that upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. 
For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.